Uh, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started this evening. This is our Wednesday night Bible study. And uh, uh, we always invite the live stream audience that listens in. And I want to thank each of you for being here and thank those of you watching from live stream for joining us. Uh, just a couple quick announcements before we get into the Word. Uh, we'll, we'll pray certainly before we start. But uh, let's remember uh, Muffy Amico. We prayed for her on Sunday after the service. A group gathered together and prayed, laid hands on her husband, Jerry. Uh, I don't know that she got home t uh, yesterday uh, or today. Does anybody know for sure? Uh, I'm assuming she did because I didn't hear any, anything otherwise. So, uh, But let's continue to pray. They're supposed to leave uh, tomorrow for their trip, she and Jerry. So I don't know if that's still on or, or what. But uh, let's continue to pray for her. Let's also lift up Brad Cotier. Uh, you guys know who Brad is uh, in our body. And uh, he's been with us from the beginning, really, at Vero Bible. And Brad has been uh, transported over to hospice. So he's in the final leg of his journey to heaven. And uh, so let's keep him in prayer. Uh, obviously, you're allowed to go and visit if you'd like. He's in room one. Walk in, see the uh, aquarium, turn left, and go to the end of the hallway. And he's on the left side, I believe. And uh, so you can go and visit if you'd like. But certainly what really matters at this point is that you pray for him. I don't believe he's responding. I went... Let's see, what is today? I think I, yes, I went uh, yesterday morning and spent time with him. Brother Ray Garcia, Pastor Ray, has been with him consistently from way back, and some other men have also spent quite a bit of time with him. Um, but I went yesterday morning, and he hadn't responded. He hadn't spoken. He hadn't moved, really, uh, for over a day. And I came in, and went over to bedside, put my hand on his shoulder, and just said, hey, Brad, it's Pastor Greg. And he, he opened his eyes, and he even turned and focused on me. And his nurse was there and said, man, he has not uh, focused on anyone. So it was a connection for him, you know. And, of course, that thrilled my heart. And I said, Brad, can I, can I read the Bible to you? And he, he whispered, yes, sir. He wanted the word. So how precious that was to have that time to be with Brad and Pastor Ray. And I know that Pastor Ray and uh, uh, also Bruce Berlin, one of our elders, uh, those men have really been close to Brad through this the last few days. And so he's in good hands, and our church is representing well the love and the care and the concern that needs to be shown. And uh, But please keep him in prayer. I'm just trying to think what other pressing needs... Uh, of the body that might we might have. Um, yes, Frank. Forty-eight. Wow. Oh, um, it'll be up tomorrow, Frank. Yeah. Hey, that's great. You and Gina celebrated forty-eight years last week. Woohoo! Awesome. That's great. Yes. Gotcha. Good. Yes, Vicky. Oh, I'm so so sorry to hear that. A baby that passed away. Eight months old. Eight months old. So let's let's remember the family. 
and the, 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 the loved ones of that, that little baby. Thank you for sharing that. Any other requests before we go to the Lord in prayer? Uh, I want to say to you, please, please pray. I, I wasn't kidding on Sunday when I said it's time for the church to be praying about a property because God seems to be leading us in a direction. And uh, so I just came from a meeting, and we've got another meeting scheduled for next week. We're just trying to discern what God's saying, and we really need your prayers because uh, we, we want to walk in wisdom, biblical wisdom, right, in decisions like this. And, of course, if the Lord is in something, uh, we'll certainly bring it before the whole church, not the whole church, we bring it before the members of the church. If you've not gone through uh, the fellowship uh, class, the membership class, we have a fellowship covenant that people sign, and only those folks are allowed to vote on this type of decision. So um, we would allow anybody to come to the meeting, but you wouldn't be able to vote. And so, but it, that but that's possible. We could we could be there, you know, which is kind of exciting that we would have a home. Does that not excite you, man? Oh man! But we don't know yet. So I'm not wanting to. Please don't walk out of here and say, Pastor Greg said we have a. We do not. Don't misquote me. I'll get in trouble with the elders and the finance team. That would be that would not be good. Just pray, okay? Well, let's go ahead and seek the Lord right now. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of, of meeting together. We, we thank you for the privilege of worship. Worship is the highest point of the believer's life. The time that we spend considering, pondering, focusing on you and giving you our time, giving you our thoughts, giving you our hearts, and that's what worship really is all about. It's putting worth in God. And so tonight, that's why we've gathered first and foremost. But we also thank you for the privilege of being part of your family. And that means that there's fellowship that happens in this room. And it's already happened, and it will continue to happen when we're done. I pray, Lord, for those who are uh, maybe they're home, maybe they're traveling, and they're watching by live stream and they're not in fellowship with other believers in the room necessarily. So we pray that you would bring them back safely or get them here uh, because fellowship is so important for the church. And you, it was so important that you made it one of the four pillars of the early church when it started, that they were given to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. So Lord, may that continue to be strong even tonight. We lift up these requests of individuals who are hurting, who are suffering. We do pray that you would help Muffy recover from her sickness. We pray for uh, Brother Brad as he is on the final leg of his journey to heaven and that you would be with him, comfort him, and comfort his family, comfort his friends that know him so well and have invest, invested so much time with him. Uh, be, Lord, with the family of this little baby that passed away. None of us, maybe some in the room understand it firsthand, but many of us do not. We don't know the level of grief and sorrow that a parent would feel uh, over the loss of a little eight-month-old baby. So be with the family, Lord. Be with the extended family. Uh, uh, use us, Lord, in prayer to lift them up to you, Lord. May the gospel be presented where there is great need in people's lives. Lord, we also pray that you would uh, just guide our our financial leaders in the church, 
give them wisdom. These are men of faith. They're not just men that are good with numbers. They also walk in faith. They're spiritual men. And I pray that you would just guide them in these decisions along with the, the, the elders who are the spiritual leaders of the church, that, Lord, we would have absolute confidence in what we're doing. And the only way to have confidence is to know that we are joining you in your work. If it's not your work, we don't want to be part of it. But we also know that your work always requires faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. That's what the Scripture says. So, Father, give them understanding. Tonight, Lord, as we open the Word, this is another form of worship, give us faith to believe the truths found in Scripture. That would be more than just memorizing Scripture, it would be fleshing out Scripture. That the Bible would, would come alive in us. That we would live out the Word that we're learning. And we pray for this by the Holy Spirit, that He would come into us and minister to us, and lead us, and conform us to Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we start a new book of the Bible tonight. Man, oh man. Yes, Sandra. Oh, okay. A twin brother that's going to have the same surgery, so very serious. His name is Wesley. And then what's his brother's name? William. Okay, let's, let's remember William. Okay, thank you. Um, as we come into this new book, this is the book of Ruth tonight. If you uh, didn't uh, remember us saying that last week. And the book of Ruth is found right after the Judges, the book of Judges. And how many of you remember when we did the study of the book of Judges on Sunday morning? We went through the whole, the whole book of Judges. Uh, Judges covers a 400-year period of anarchy and oppression that came upon the Israelites because of their apostasy. They would, they would follow God, and then they would fall into apostasy. And then when they're in apostasy, God would send the enemy upon them. He used all the nations against them to bring them, to, to literally humble them. And then after they were humbled by these nations, they would cry out to God for help, and God would raise up a judge, a hero. That's what the judges were. They were heroes. And the heroes would defeat the enemy, and the people would return to God, and things would be wonderful for a, se for a season. And then they'd turn right around and go through the same process again and again and again. That's the book of Judges. It's not an encouraging book. The book is really about God's discipline of His people because they were so given to rebellion. Well, during the last years of the book of Judges, one of the stories that takes place in that period of time is the story that we find in the book of Ruth. You cannot think of Ruth without thinking of Judges. They all occurred at the same time in history. Most scholars believe that Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. So uh, we don't really know for sure, 
But we do know that when we come to the end of chapter 16 in the book of Judges, uh, that would be the, at the end of the story of Samson, okay? We actually come to the end of the historical part of that book, of the book of Judges. What follows in chapter 17 of Judges, and even the chapters after it, uh, are different incidents that take place that demonstrate how it was a time of spiritual confusion and moral decay for Israel. Genesis, okay, this is four times from seven, chapter 17 on, four different times, this is what the text says. I'm quoting from Judges 17, 6. I did not list out, okay, let me give them to you. Chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 21, verses uh, 2, I think. I mean, four times, this is what the text says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There it is. Did we not just hear that throughout the study of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings? Well, this is still this is what was happening prior. So at this time, some of the Danites, remember the tribe of Dan. They had moved, their, inherit, moved their, uh, their place of the inheritance that God gave them in the land. They went further north where they engaged in idol worship. This is also when we see the conditions of the Benjaminites shift. They went AWOL. In fact, they, were, they possessed the city of Gibeah and sodomy began to take place and be practiced by the men of Gibeah, and the consequences followed through the rest of the book of Judges. So we, we continue to see God's people going in a downgrade, a downward spiral in their lives. Well, this is the time period after Genesis, after, I'm sorry, Judges 16. Somewhere in that period moving forward, during Judges, that is when the story of Ruth takes place. The book of Ruth tells us of a young Moabite widow, a Moabite. She is not a Jew. She is not one of God's chosen, holy, or dearly loved. And yet, this story talks about a young Moabite widow. Out of love for her widowed Israelite mother-in-law, she abandons her own culture and she says to her mother-in-law, your people shall be my people, and your God my God. We're going to read that tonight in our text. Though she was destitute and in desperate need, she took time to show kindness to others. This is a Gentile who now is caring for her mother-in-law. Okay, More of that will come to light when we study that chapter. Her disposition, her character captures the attention of a man by the name of Boaz. He was much older than her, and he took Ruth as his wife. Ruth serves as a wonderful example of God's providential care of His people, of His willingness to accept Gentiles who at that time were not brought into His family. But He brought Ruth in so much so that even David, the lineage of David, includes Ruth. 
She is an ancestor to David. Think about that. And if it's, she's an ancestor to David, guess who else she's an ancestor of? The Messiah, a Gentile woman. That shows you in a season when God is pouring out judgment and wrath and anger on His children, He also shows at the same time love, compassion, kindness, and mercy. Don't ever think of God being one or the other. He's always both. You say, no, wait a minute. He's, he, when He's love, He's not angry. Then why does the Scripture in Romans say that He's storing up wrath? That doesn't mean only when He's in a bad mood. Every day, men are evil, and every day God is storing up wrath. But at the same time, he is a loving God. Isn't that wonderful to know? Now, we were talking before class, and we got off on the subject of churches, even in our community, that do not believe that Jesus is God. They will mention Jesus. They will even call themselves pastor. One of the churches, uh, now, now I don't know their new pastor, so maybe things are different, but the pastor before... Who's been, who was in the community for many years, who wrote articles in the, in the press journal, uh, on their church there's a cross. But he himself uh, is quoted as saying he used to be a Southern Baptist, but that was back when he used to believe Jesus was God, that he no longer believes Jesus is God. Why would you have a cross on your church if you don't believe Jesus is God? And a lot of people today, even in, in the... Uh, not so much the evangelical world, but in this world of really people that have an apostasy. They've drifted away from God, and now they don't even accept Jesus as God. And, and, and then we, we, we kind of talked a little bit about how easy it is uh, that in these settings, people who drift away from God, they think they're justified in it. They think they're justified. I believe that that was Israel. Israel had found other ways. Remember why they said they wanted a king? Why did they say they wanted a king? They wanted to be like everybody. They justified it. We want to be like everybody else. So what they did, in essence, was they rejected the king. Capital K, capital I, capital N, capital G. God, in order to have their own king, a man. His name was Saul. Uh, how did that work out? Not so well. That's right. So this is a wonderful story. And theologically speaking, let me just share just a couple thoughts here on this because I do think you're going to enjoy this study for the next four weeks. Uh, while the immediate purpose of this little book is to actually trace the ancestry of, uh, of David and Messiah, but we also find some rich spiritual insights throughout the four chapters. Uh, Ruth was from Moab, as I said, and the Moabites were excluded from the nation of Israel. But because she put her faith in the God of Israel, she was accepted. And it's illustrated right here in this book how God receives those who put their faith in Him. Uh, Boaz is pictured as a kinsman redeemer a kinsman redeemer. What is that? 
Well, first, what is Ruth representative of? She's representative of a sinner who left her own land to go towards Israel with her mother-in-law. She was coming to God on his terms. She was a sinner. She was destitute. She had nowhere else to go. She's a picture of what it looks like when a sinner turns to God. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He's the picture of Jesus Christ who covers her. Really, some wonderful spiritual symbolism in this, in this book. Uh, the grace of God and the providential leading of God are major themes throughout this book. And we've been talking quite a bit about the providential hand of God, so you're going to see that coming up again and again and again. Ruth became, uh, as I said, an ancestor of the Messiah and of David. Let me just read for you one passage. Write it down. I'll just read, though. Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is the lineage of Christ. And listen to what it says in verse 5 and 6, Matthew 1. And Salmon, Salmon, I'm sorry, it's not Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. It says it in the text when it records the lineage. It doesn't just say David, it says David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And it was prophesied that the Messiah would come through this line. If you go and study 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll see that it was prophesied that Ruth would come into this line. Okay? Uh, so, like Rahab, Ruth was a Gentile. A Gentile who married a Jew and became part of salvation history. That's just incredible to me, that God would save a Gentile back in that day. Remember how big of a deal it was when Peter had the experience of the vision and the sheet came down out of heaven and every type of animal was on it, all these unclean animals, and God said, take and eat. And he said, oh, Lord, I would never eat that kind of meat. That is unclean. And God said, I have declared it clean. Eat it. Sounds like my mother when I was a boy, and I didn't want to eat everything on my plate. So she would always double dip it. She would say, if I, if I knew better after a while. You learned the lesson. But I, she'd say, Mom, I don't like that. Oh, well, let me just help you here. Another helping. And you finish all of it. Oh, yeah. And so years, not years, probably in the spring, she was cleaning in the kitchen. And two of the walls behind the round table were uh, windows and had curtains. And she goes behind the curtains, and there's the green peas that my brother buried. I guess I must not have sat by a window, because that, that was a great idea, but I, I didn't pull that off. So... There's some wonderful things here in this salvation story. Let me give you just uh, six. Six wonderful truths that we're going to find over the next four weeks. You can write these down if you'd like. Number one, no matter how difficult the situation might be, 
if we surrender to the Lord and obey Him, He will bring us through it. Let me say it again. No matter how difficult the situation may be, if we surrender to the Lord and obey Him, He will see us through. I believe that with all my heart. And don't think for a second I'm saying that you won't die. Sometimes the way He brings you through is death. But He will bring you through if you're faithful and, you're, and you, you obey the Lord. Remain humble. Do whatever He tells you to do. Number two, no person is so far outside the reach of God's grace that he or she cannot be saved. No person is so far away in their sinful life that God's grace cannot save them. Ruth had everything against her, but the Lord saved her. Number three, am I moving too quick? Okay, I'll, thank you. Just say, just say, just say uh, excuse me, Pastor Greg, could you? <laughs> Forgive me. Can I go forward? Okay. Number three, God providentially guides those who want to obey Him and serve others. In other words, God has a plan. Those who obey and carry out His will, He will provide for them. He just does. So God providentially guides those who want to obey Him and serve others. Ruth showed great concern for her mother-in-law, Naomi. So God led her and brought her into a life of great fulfillment. Okay? Number four. Can we go four? Are we still? Okay. It does, not, it does no good to get angry at God and blame Him for our mistakes. God used Ruth to lead Naomi out of despair and into His blessing. There's no good purpose behind letting uh, excuses come out of your mouth or where your attitude is just a life of excuse for yourself, for your own mistakes. You, you need to own up. You need to confess. And you need to seek God with all your heart. And God will bring you through that to a better day. Okay, so let me say it again the way I wrote it here. It does no good to get angry at God and blame Him for our mistakes. Number five, there are no small decisions with God. The little things matter. There are no small decisions with God. Ruth's decision to glean in the fields led to her becoming part of the lineage of David and Messiah simply by going to the field and drawing what little seed she could or what little uh, kernels of wheat she could. Yeah, uh, there are no small decisions with God. That's it. Yeah, that's all it was. Uh, let me give you a passage of Scripture. Write it down. Psalm 37, verse 3 through 7. This is like the theme song and written by David. And David came along after Ruth, right? 
So here's a theme song of Ruth's life. Psalm 37, 3-7. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Make yourself a friend to faithfulness. I love that. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Verse 6, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. That's a great passage, is it not? Okay, number six, last point of of truth that we're going to see in this story. It is wise to wait on the Lord and let Him work out His loving purposes. Let the Lord do the work. You just wait. That's the hardest thing for Christians to do, is to wait on the Lord. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. After we have done all that we can do, we must trust the Lord to do the rest, and He will never fail us. Okay? So why don't we get started in chapter 1? We'll see if we can cover uh, chapter 1 tonight. These are short chapters. Again, we'll probably be done in four weeks with the whole book. Chapter 1. Now, um, again, let me just say, this is a time of spiritual, spiritual confusion and moral decay in the life of Israel, the nation. And that's why God is judging. That's why God is bringing discipline upon them. And this is the setting for this wonderful story. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. So in those days, you may have looked at the overall condition of the nation and said, what a mess, much like we look at today. What a mess. Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've said that. Well, guess what? God's going to help us tonight. Uh, God is just as much moving in His plans on this earth today as He was back when you remember America being better than this. Nothing has changed with our God. As bad as it's gotten, God is still working. He's still moving. He's still carrying out His loving plan. You've got to come to grips with that. You've got to settle that in your heart. No matter what you see out there, your God is still on the throne, and He still has a plan and purpose. Amen? Okay, the book of Ruth gives us great insight into the work of God in troubled times. The book of Ruth is a reminder for us that God can work and does work His purposes on the earth, even under adverse circumstances. This book, I hope, encourages you that we are under terrible circumstances. Guess what that means? This is miracle territory. Now God can do what He wants to do, and He gets the credit for it. Because it's so bad, we know that if if something good comes out of this world, let's say people get saved at an unprecedented level, God gets all the glory for it. Because the world's so bad, no, no man can turn this thing around. It has to be God. Amen? All right. 
in verse 1 again, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now let me just say this about the famine, that a famine oftentimes in Scripture is a symbol or a rep representative of God's discipline or God's judgment. Famines didn't just happen because, you know, the sun was bright and the, there was no rain. For Usually God's behind it, okay? And that's the case here. And so this man, a Moabite, he and his wife and his two sons, it says in verse 2, the name of this man was Elimelech. Everybody say Elimelech, okay? And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites, Ephrathites, from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So what do we have? God bringing judgment upon the Jews. Certainly Jerusalem, Bethlehem, was getting hit pretty hard by God in discipline. Now there's a famine. And what did they do? This Jewish family said, let's go to the land of Moab because we've heard that they're prospering there, okay? So they're going to leave the general area that they lived in and, and, and go ahead and, and move to this other land. Now, the names are interesting because the names are oftentimes significant to the story. You know this. Every name has a meaning. Even with parents who named a child and didn't think about the meaning behind the name. That person's life, that child, if you go back and look and look at their name and look at what it means, it's amazing how it played out. I do believe there's something about God's plan, His providence that's in that. Okay? Why did you name me Greg, Mom? He had no idea. You probably liked Gregory Peck, the actor. <laughs> so, so she had no idea. You know what Greg means? It means watchman, shepherd, pastor. Isn't that amazing? And she had no clue. Names have meaning. My brother is a pastor up in northern Alabama in Decatur, and uh, he now, at every funeral, he always does a background check on the name. And he said, Greg, not a single time have I not found that that name was something they lived out in their life. Every single time that name proved out in their life. Makes you want to go home and look up your name, doesn't it? Okay, so, so the name Elimelech, guess what it means? My God is King. What a great name, Elimelech. Uh, the name Naomi, guess what Naomi means? Pleasantness, pleasantness. I've got a granddaughter named Naomi, and boy, is she pleasant. I just, her smile, she just... Her whole face lights up, and it just makes me happy. We're going to be traveling out there uh, and staying for about a week, so please pray for me. 
five little ones that are really energetic. And I do really well for about three days. And Rini, my wife, is still going strong till the sixth day. For me, it lasts about three days, and then I need to have a little break. I'll still go and see them every day, but maybe not spend the whole day there. So, Pleasantness, that's a beautiful name. But the name Malon, this is his son, Malon, guess what it means? Sickly, sickly. And then his, the other son's name, Chilion, guess what it means? Pining, pining, okay? So names have meaning, okay? Uh, it was common to name a child after the circumstance of their birth. Many times that happened, right? Like in the Bible, when Esau was born, he was covered with hair. Could you imagine having a baby and he looks like a little ape? I mean, he's just got hair everywhere. And uh, that's what Bill McClellan's brother said about him. He said, he's not really a McClellan. He's really a, uh, an ape. Because when he was born, he had hair everywhere. Uh, and that's why they named that child Esau. It means hairy. Hairy, okay? And, uh, and, and so that's, that's all through the Bible. Then Jacob comes out, and what's Jacob doing? He's holding the heel of Esau, his brother, when he comes out. And they said his name will be Jacob, which means heel catcher. Isn't that something? Heel catcher. So when Malon was born, perhaps he was premature. Maybe it was t a touch-and-go situation. They didn't know if he'd make it, so they named him uh, Sickly. And then his brother was born. Didn't look like he'd, much would come from him. They just named him Pining. Okay? Uh, and guess what? Both of those boys died young. Interesting. Uh, so in the land of Bethlehem, there was a famine, a drought, and they heard that there was good land over in Moab. So Elimelech decided to sell out and take his wife and their two sons and go to Moab. Uh, now, verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Ah, that's not good. Okay, my God is king. So at least he died believing that God was king. That's good. Okay, but he dies. And she was left with two sons. These took Moabite wives. So while they're over in the land, these boys grow up. They get married to two Moabite girls. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now that's bad enough to hear that in this day, if that happened to you. But in that day, let me give you the cultural references and nuances. They had moved over to Moab, but things are not working out as planned. The one son married Orpah, the other son married Ruth, and then the boys die. And guess what? They did not have children. So these two girls are not only widows, but they're without children. To be a childless widow in that day um, was the lowest, most disadvantaged position for a woman to be in. Okay? There was no one to support you, and you had to live on the generosity of strangers. 
Naomi had no family in Moab. This is the mother, the widowed mother, okay? And no one else to help her. It was a desperate situation. Now, verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So now she went to Moab in order to get away from the famine, and now she's in Moab. She's lost her husband and her two sons, and she's got two daughter-in-laws, and all three of them are outcasts in society. And she gets word as she's out gleaning in the field in Moab, she gets word that things are changing over in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem in that region. And so she decides to go back to her people. She set out, verse 7, from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now this set Naomi apart from many other people. Many will hear of the good things that God is doing, but they never move. They don't have the faith to follow God. This woman, even with all the heartache, even with all the despair, and I have to believe when I read this story that she was suffering some from depression over the great losses in her life. Yet, she still heard where God is moving we're going there. We're going there. Verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So during this time of family tragedy, these two girls actually showed a real depth of character. They didn't abandon their mother-in-law. Now listen, they are in the land of their own people. They could, excuse me, easily go back to their own families. They stayed with the widowed mother. And they are with her to support her, to help her any way they can. That's pretty cool, okay? And, and so they stood by her in her time of grief and, and, and really despair. Now, it says in the text that she said, May the Lord deal kindly with you. Go back to your family's house and may the Lord deal kindly with you. In the Hebrew, that is the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. Hesed encompasses deeds of mercy performed by a more powerful party for the benefit of the weaker party. And this is, she said, I want God to show mercy upon you. God can do anything. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He has everything you need. I'm asking God to deal kindly with you, even though you're not Jewish. I'm asking God to deal kindly with you. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So this is a very moving moment. She is saying as a widow in her own grief, a time of great sorrow, She's looking to these two younger women who do not have children yet. It is not good that you stay with me. You're still in the childbearing years. Go back to your people. Find a husband. Raise children. Do that. Now, the tradition in, of the Jews was that if your spouse died 
and didn't leave you children, you would look to the next uh, son, or it would be the brother of your husband who died. And if he wasn't married, he would take you as his wife to try and help you bear children because you wanted to bear children of the name of your husband that died. That was the way they did it. Well, guess what? Both boys are dead. There is nothing they can do. And so she's saying, okay, you're, you're free. Go back to your people and have a husband. Now, let me just say this to you. This really encourages my heart. Uh, she, tells, she tells the girls, look what it says here. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Where does she say you'll find rest? Now listen, in marriage. Under God's design of marriage, which is totally different from the way we carry out marriage today. That's the last place that most people would say you find rest. If they read that text and heard what I said, I'm not misquoting this. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, where? In the house of her husband. That would get laughed out of the room. I mean, if, if, if it was a comedy hour and somebody got up and said that, people would crack up laughing. But that's not how God sees marriage. When you wait on the Lord and you allow God to bring the right spouse who loves Him the way you love Him, who understands His role or her role, just as you have come to understand from the Bible your role, and you enter into that covenant relationship in the eyes of God, asking God to help you live out that relationship. There are people on this earth who have done just that, and they've been married 50, 60, 70, 80 years, and it has been restful. You cannot say that that's a, that's a falsity. That's not a true statement. It is a truism when you do it God's way. I'm not saying that there's not times and moments of work and not getting along. That's in every marriage, right? When you have to live with somebody, that's a total change. Now you've got to be a you've got to be willing to sacrifice, to surrender for their sake and they for yours. But people who are led by the spirit of God will do that. And they just keep right on going. And they find rest. I'm not saying it's always rest. But there's rest in the marriage. I had that with my wife. I have it with my wife. I, 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 when I travel, and I don't travel now these days like I did when I was a little younger, I would go off and preach somewhere, and, and after the first night away, I am missing my wife and my kids because that is home. That is where I want to be. That's where I reside. That's what gives me the greatest sense of fulfillment is being with my family. And I, I just think that's really interesting how he sees that. He describes marriage as a place of rest. God intends that each marriage be a place of, and a source of rest, of peace, and of a time of refreshing. You ever had those moments in your marriage where you're just so different on certain things 
but you've been together long enough that you just laugh it off? I, we, we do that in my house. My daughter and I were talking and just recently, and we were talking about idiosyncrasies, and I mentioned one of Rini's idiosyncrasies. I said, I'm in the kitchen, and uh, we've got, you open the door in the kitchen to the garage, and right there on the, on the shelf is the uh, recycle bin. You, you, you just open the door, and you take the bottle, the, the empty plastic bottle, and you put it in the recycle bin. I, but Rini will take the, recycle, the, the plastic bottles, and she sets them, stacks them up next to the microwave. It's a, it's a five-step journey to put them in the recycle bin. And, but see, now I just giggle about it. When I was telling it to Annie, I was laughing about it. It was just, that's, that's my wife. And I love her. I love the fact that she's unique that way. Now, I could get lists for you about 50 idiosyncrasies in my wife. She might find 10 in me. But... Please laugh because I was joking. Um, I've got five for every one that she has, that's for sure. Uh, she's probably thinking, man, I should be there tonight. Yes, you should, honey. <laughs> okay. Verse 10. And they said there, by the way, what, what she's suggesting to these girls is common sense. You, you go with me, you're not going to be married you're not going to have children. You need that. And, and I want you to have a good life. Marriage is where you'll find a good life. Okay, now verse 10, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Now these are girls that are in their own homeland right now. They could easily walk away from her. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should, if, and, and if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Now she's referring to the way that they, that they pass on to the brother. The, the widowed. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughter. She's being kind to these girls. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, some people see that as Ruth being really angry at God. That's not the case here. This is a woman who knows that God is a providential God. And there are times where He blesses us because we are obedient, and there's times where He disciplines because we're disobedient. Now think about this. I do think God's sovereign plan was that they go to the land of Moab. Why? Because God knew from the beginning that a Moabitess would be in the lineage of David and Messiah. There was a story to tell out of that experience. But we also know they abandoned the land of the Jews and went and lived among other people. And God had told the Israelites when they went into the land, do not take on the other people and don't marry them. Okay? 
So, so, but see, God uses even our sin, even our disobedience. God doesn't waste anything. And so here we see, Ruth said, do not, or I'm sorry, so she's telling the girl, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. What happened was, verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. Can you imagine having a daughter-in-law with that kind of commitment to loyalty and support? Wow. That's incredible, isn't it? And she's not a Jew. She's not a Jew. So what a devotion to Naomi. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See, sometimes there's a test at play, and God will say, well, you could do this. And you're like, yeah, that's a good plan. I think I will. And God's like, you just failed the test. I didn't put that out there for you to do it. I put it out as a test to see if you'd stay with me. And this girl passed the test. Now, Orpah went back to her people and went back to her gods. That's what it says in the text. But not, not Ruth. She passed the test. And so when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now, obviously, there's this beautiful bond that was created between this daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people be, will be my people. Your God will be my God. God forbid if anything but death should separate us. So together they came back into the land. Verse 19, latter part of the verse. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? So when Naomi comes back into her region, the ladies at the town center recognize her. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, M-A-R-A, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitterness. Remember the water that the Israelites drank and it was bitter water? It was Mara, okay? So here she's saying, my name means pleasantness, but the reality is I'm bitter. I'm bitter. Now, it sounds harsh how she said this, this to the ladies. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. That's interesting. But really, if you understood from her angle what she experienced when the ladies recognized her, pleasantness, it's so good to see you. Pleasantness, how are you? Don't call me pleasantness. I'm bitter. Now all of a sudden it puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It makes us think a little different. 
We're no different from her. When we go through difficult times, we don't want to be around people who only see the good. We're not ready to celebrate the good. We're hurting. We're wounded. We need to heal first. And so the last people you want to be around are people who are healthy. And honestly, we're looking at starting small groups at Bureau Bible Fellowship, and there will be groups that are discipleship-based primarily. You know, it's for growth. Growth means green, right? Green stands for growth. And so here you are, and you say, oh, I, 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 maybe that'll I want to do a small group. And you go in the small group, but you're not healthy. You're not ready to grow because you're still carrying woundedness from something that happened in your life more recently. And while the group is there and they're excited and they're talking about the Lord and the goodness of God, you're sitting there going, it's not that good. Look what happened to me. And little by little each week, you bring the group down into your blues. You're not living in a green zone. You're living in the blues. And so what does a healthy church do? We say to that person, you know what? You're probably not ready for this type of small group. Over here, we've got a group for folks who have come through grieving and to learn how to work through the loss and get to a healthy place again. And we take that person and we we help them in that direction, and they go for a season of their life. Maybe it's for three weeks. Maybe it's for you know, three months, and they get healthy. And then the leader says to them, you don't need to be in the blues anymore. You're ready for the green zone. You need to grow. But see, that's the case. She's coming back. The ladies are happy to see her. They call her by her name, Pleasantness. She's like, no, it's not where I'm at right now very upset and frustrated and confused. I'm in despair. I'm bitter. Hmm. There's something in that for us. Maybe for each of you it means something else, something different, but I hope that the Lord speaks to you and ministers to you through this text. Now, let's keep moving here. I think we can finish up here. Oh, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, I'm almost done. Can we go ahead and finish chapter chapter one? Why not? Let's do it. So uh, it is natural for us to blame uh, others for our tragedies. We'll look everywhere else except the fact that maybe we might play a part in some of the unhealthy things that happen, or sometimes things just happen, and then we're angry at God for letting it happen. But remembering, God always uses every situation. Don't be a person who spends the next year asking God, why, why, why? you got to get to a point where you can honestly ask Him, what are you trying to teach me through this terrible tragedy? Is there a lesson that I can learn to be a better follower of you? Can you strengthen me and spiritually mature me? That's really where we need to get to. That's not easy all the time, but that's what's necessary. So, verse 21. And really, in this point of the story, it's almost like Naomi, he wanted to return home because it would be better. I do think she understood that God is her God, and she knows that it'll be better for her to go back. 
But she also looks at her life and thinks, my life's over. There's not really anything left. I don't have a husband. I don't have any boys anymore. That means I don't have any grandkids. I mean, she's, she's, she's down on life. But what she didn't know, didn't understand, is God's not finished yet. Okay? And when this story unfolds, it's going to be such a blessing to you. I know all of you probably have already read it, but uh, verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? Now, here she is saying, I understand providence. God is against me. Something's happened, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She gives God the credit for that. Okay? Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Naomi came back feeling that God had afflicted her. But in the coming chapters, it will be very clear to us that God actually is getting ready to bless her. She's come home. In your trials, in your bitterness, in your difficulty, obey God. It's going to be hard to do it. Do it. Return to the Lord. Return to where God is moving. And she did just that, and she ends up being blessed. Amen. Let's close it. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Oh, this story is such a wonderful story. Right smack dab in the middle of a season of 400 years where the Israelites are suffering from their sinfulness and their wickedness and rebellion, and God is pouring out His judgment upon them and disciplining them in such harsh ways. And yet, in the middle of that, we see this beautiful story of your love and your mercy and your grace for those who trust you when it's difficult, who turn to you in times of adversity and obey what you're telling them to do. Oh God, may this be a lesson for us. May we glean from, these from this story and may it better our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless each of you.